0: Good morning, my name is Genesee. We're reading out of 1 Kings, chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. You can find that on page 167 in the Blue Bible. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he fled from King Solomon, Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer these people? Sorry. And they said to him, If you will be a servant to the people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young man who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nibet. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to him, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now on your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to the mount, his chariot, to flee Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly, made him king over all Israel, but there was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat.
1: Thank you, Genesee. And that is the last long passage we have to read for a very long time. It's been a good ride. Um, As a pastor of the church, one of your jobs, just kind of by nature of the role, is storyteller of the church, and I would love to tell you all the story of the uh, church from beginning to now, and I think uh, we have a picture that basically represents how I feel about this church and what this church is. This happened yesterday. This is National Adoption Day. Down in the middle there is Abbey Nevea. Blackwell, our first sort of North Mountain baby. So give it up. And if you don't know Abby, you'd love her. But just here's Dan and Amy moved out here to help us start this church with one kid, praying for another kid, asking. The Lingo Box were in that picture, also moved with us, and they just love fostering. And Cody was convinced by Heather yet again. Heather is a very convincing personality. We just moved, I just changed jobs. Our whole life has changed, it's COVID. And Heather said, I think we should foster again. Cody's like, I don't know. And Heather says, we're fostering again. And <laughs> they fostered Nevea at the time for a long time. And there was this connection made with the Blackwells. And now she gets to be adopted by Dan and Amy and she's got a forever home. And when I think about North Mountain, all those people in that picture, most of them are the core team which in the church planning world, I don't, you know, I'm not a business guy, but in church planning business world, two years, by year two, your, your core people kind of peel off, and you got a new, fresh, and that's all of our OGs, the people that moved up here, the people that joined really early on, and they're all there supporting the Blackwells and Sweet Abbey. So I just want to stop and thank God that he's so faithful to our church, and that picture is a picture of what I think about when I think about this church. It's these relationships, it's prayers that have been prayed for a long time, and sometimes they get answered in this beautiful way. So if you're around Dan and Amy right here, will you put your, Genesee, you love them, would you put your arms on them? And yeah, you know, I just want to pray. <laughs> God, thank you for Dan and Amy, their faithfulness. God, just the realness of their faith and how they walk through life. Uh, with the good stuff, with the hard stuff, with the desire for a bigger family and more kids, and God, you've answered that prayer and you've answered it within a church family. It's just a beautiful picture, that they're not alone, Abby's never alone, none of us are ever alone, and that the church is this new family, the people of God, saved by grace through faith because of Christ alone. God, I pray that you would imprint that picture on my heart and the heart of the people of this church. We are the new family. And we've got more space for more people we want to keep inviting, whether it's foster kids who need homes or it's people who need to meet Jesus. God, make us a hospitable place, just like the Black have been. Lord, thank you for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, gosh. Um, and just as happy news, we've got Christmas Eve services. I'll change the, Just so you know, you're pre- Christmas Eve is on a Saturday this year. It's always changing, that sinking Christmas Eve. We never know when it is. This year, it's a Saturday. 2, 3, 30, and 5, so you can go to Olive Garden afterwards, playing your time, which one you're going to be at. I don't know which one is going to be most full. Um, we'll just cross our fingers and hope. Uh, lots of churches do RSVPs. I'm not that technologically advanced. Just pick the service you think people won't want to go to as a gift to us, and then that'll spread us out. <laughs> And then that means Christmas Day is a Sunday, which we won't have anything. Uh, if you do want a redemption Christmas service, Arcadia is the one person doing a live service. If you want to drive over there, what they're doing is they're having a hymn sing just out on their lawn with Frank Switzer, who's the, uh, one of the only empty nester pastors. He's like, all you guys have young kids, I'm going to go out there and sing hymns with my church. So sweet Frank's going to do that on Christmas Day. And then the following week is New Year's Day on a Sunday, and we're going to just have a prayerful, worshipful Sunday together. So that's what I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but we start Advent next week. So it's like upon us, it is here. And we are wrapping up this series that we have been in for a long time now. We want a king. Andrew asked me, Are we still in that series? Yes, we are. <laughs> Solomon died last week, if you're tracking. So the three kings we've been watching, Saul, David, Solomon, they're all gone now. So what could I possibly teach today? Here's what I want to do. It's just the lessons that have been hitting me week after week after week. Of all my time being a preacher, teacher of God's word, this is where I've learned the most personally. Not so much like huge conviction of sin, but just it's like these men were real men with this great potential huge flaws in this unbelievably gracious in control God behind the scenes working all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes and we're watching it play out in the lives of these men so here's what I'm going to do today the five lessons that I've got I don't know if they're the same lessons you have but five lessons that I've learned from watching the lives of these men so I want to stop and I know we're praying a lot but that's what we do we're praying people let's pray and ask God to meet us one last time in this story God thank you for your Bible It's the one book that will stand the test of time. You say, let everyone else be a liar. God alone will stand true. And thank you for your gracious invitation to even allow us into this story. You did not stay distant. You, through your prophets and your apostles, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these down so that we could meet you in your word, and more specifically, we could meet your Son in your word. So, God, that's what we want, to meet you again in your word because of your grace. Be here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, five lessons. They're not all happy, joy, joy, but they're the lessons that I've learned. Here's the first lesson that I've learned walking through this. We're going to die. You're like, so we started this series in July. Chris Smith hates this message. He's like, you know you're talking about, heavy stuff, but this is what we're talking about. 21 weeks this this series has taken us to start at the life of Saul, the tall, handsome guy who they asked for, now to Solomon, the grandson, the son of David. 21 weeks, and we've covered a lot of life, and it's just hit me like David was this many weeks, and then he's gone, and then Solomon was this many weeks, and then he's gone. They just keep dying. I just want to remind us of the story. Here's the passages where we see these guys Go be with the Lord. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, Let, lest these uncircumcised, that would be an un, a non Jew, come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. The mighty warrior was losing a battle. He's so embarrassed. He does not want to be killed by them, so he commits suicide. That was the end of King Saul, the man that Israel demanded God give them. And then David. He has a more peaceful ending. He dies in old age. David slept with his fathers, which is the way they describe death, and was buried in the city of David. So David's gone. And then turn the page. Solomon. at that time, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem was 40 years and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father and Rehoboam which we just read his son reigned in this place wherever you look the bible does not pass over death it more treats it like an obvious thing that happens they died and then life kept on they died life kept on they died Life to kept on. I want to show you a chart. I'm going to use this chart throughout this message. It's going to, there's going to be more teaching points of this. But here's a chart of all the kings that happen after this kingdom splits now. So just as a teacher, one of the biggest burdens I carry for people is that this Bible is really confusing, especially like this chunk, the Old Testament chunk. So what is the Old Testament chunk? Really, the bulk of it, the prophets, which we're going to get to if you keep turning the page, are prophets that get raised up during the split kingdom because all these guys are boneheads. So God keeps bringing in prophets. Isaiah, go talk to them. Jeremiah, go talk to them. But I'm too young. I can't do this. Jeremiah, go talk to the kings. They're idiots. They need help. Please help them. Ezekiel, go talk to them. Daniel, go talk to them. Hosea, go talk to him. Malachi, go talk to them. Go talk to him. Who are they talking to? These kings. So Israel is the north the kingdom in the north, and that's all the kings, starting in 976 B.C. all the way down to 731 B.C. where they get taken over by Assyria, and they become no more. And they become, just so you know where they end up in the New Testament, they're the Samaritans now. They're the Jewish people that were up in the north, away from the actual holy place, Jerusalem, and they start to sort of intermarry, and they become this like mixed-breed Jewish sort of tribe that isn't really recognized by the true Jews in the south over there. So it's like I went to Turkey a couple of years ago. It's like the Kurds is this group. It's like, uh, who likes the Kurds? Well, no one likes the Kurds. And who, you know, I'm not making a racial statement. I'm not, that's not, but just there, they're like this oddball group that no one will claim, no one will give land to. That's sort of what happens in the north. King, king, king. And they sort of lose their Jewish identity. The woman at the well is a woman from the north. Jesus, why are you talking to me? I'm a woman of the north i'm a samaritan and then in the south you get rehoboam solomon's son he blows it next guy blows it all the way down they last a little longer they go all the way to 586 bc when they are taken over by the babylonians so that is the whole old testament so if you're wondering like why are the prophets so fired up it's because those guys were such bad kings And therefore, the people of Israel became such bad people of God. They were not living the life that God had hoped for them when he met with Moses and gave him a law. They kept messing up, and all these kings just kept making it worse. So all these prophets come and do crazy stuff. I mean, you read the prophets. They do. One prophet had to make food on top of cow dung and eat it. You're like, what is up with that? And God's like, that's how you're righteous acts feel to me, like eating off of dung." So you're like, why is the Old Testament hard to read? Because it's intense, but it's intense because what happens after Solomon is it just gets worse. The kings get worse, and they just keep dying off. There's the rest of the Old Testament there. We are all gonna die. You're like, let's get to the Christmas message. (laughs) Some of you maybe have like a, a, a more anticipatory view of death. Like I talked to my dad. He's like, I just want to go. That's not me. I want to live a long time. I don't want to have any pain. But here's the reality. We are all going to die. And we live in a culture that sort of deflects and dodges the reality of death over and over and over again. Yeah. Like churches used to have cemeteries that you had to walk through as you went up to the church doors. As a reminder, this is the end of all of us. Now we have a strip mall, and you get a Dollar Tree, and you get reminded, that <laughs> my life is good, I got Skittles for buck twenty-five today. <laughs> but we live in this culture that's constantly trying to fight death. I was reading an article called Quest for Immortality, talking about people in uh, San Francisco Got backing by Bezos and all these rich people that are trying to find ways to sort of stop death. And it was fascinating. Here's how they're doing it Sierra Sciences is one of the companies that's trying to race to cheat death. Their focus is on treatments that can lengthen the telomeres, the caps of the DNA strands. Whatever that is, telomeres get shorter each time a cell copies itself because our cells copy those cells throughout the lives. The telomeres eventually get very short and the cells cannot regenerate. Translation, we get old. So, what's, how do we keep this? And millions upon millions upon millions of dollars are going towards stopping the reality of aging and death. One guy says if you can get the telomeres back to the normal state they are when you're born, that could reduce your biological age back to 20. Wow. Maybe that happens, but you could still get hit by a bus. <laughs> so you look great at 25, but that bus is bigger and faster. <laughs> the way Paul in the New Testament says our last enemy is death. Jesus has conquered all things, but the last enemy that still has not been destroyed is death. And Jesus, when he comes back again, will destroy the enemy that plagues us all. That being death. And I just, as I've read, I've been like, and I hit four, maybe I hit 40 in the middle of this series too. um, And just watching family members make dumb decisions. I've just had a lot of like introspection. And I'm like, I'm gonna die. And one way, I got this from another pastor I respect he faces mortality personally as he goes to a graveyard and he finds somebody who's his age and he sits there and he just ponders and reflects if this is me how's my life been I remember doing it when Aubrey was pregnant with our first she's like what'd you do all day I was in a cemetery (laughs) why thinking about death you don't ever go to that cemetery I'm about to have your first son don't but you, three options with death. You can ignore it, which is what culture tries to do. We've got a lot of young people, and all the things are in your favor right now to just ignore it. You can fear it, where it's like, a, and I hope that's some of you, because you, there should be a sense of fear, because there is an end date. Or I think what the Bible would tell us to do is embrace it as a reality. Like, It's coming. And it should shape and flavor and give us meaning to life and give us purpose to life. King David is one of the kings we've been studying. And we've covered all his flaws and all his mishaps and all his sin. But David and Solomon both wrote some of the most profound thoughts ever given to us. And David has a great psalm where he's thinking about death and giving us a lesson on how we should navigate death. It's out of Psalm 39, but here's what David would say to us. Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Salah, which is like praise be to God. Let's pause in this moment. David says, let me think about it. Let me think about the shortness of my life. And as I've gone through this series, these men come, they go, they come, they go, they come, they go, and the same is true for all of us. They're going to write down the life story of us in whatever way, whether memories of our kids or friends or family, or people actually were big enough and bad enough to have a story written about us, but they're going to write it, and then it's going to come to an end. We are all going to face death. Think about that. Like, I love this church. We invite a lot of people. People just keep getting invited, and they're not all Christians, which is... What we want, but non-Christian. One of the main things you got to do business with is the fact that you will die one day. I talk to my neighbors all the time about this, and that's sort of my trump card I pull out. Whether it's the four- fourth grader on my street, like, "Hey, Eston, what happens when you're dead?" <laughs> I don't. We were just playing flag football, and this just—we're <laughs> all gonna face death. David says, "Teach me." To number my days. Christian, I would remind you, you're going to die. That's a reality. Christians should live in light of that. Here's the other thing. It's sort of uh, related, but we will be replaced. This is maybe more depressing for some of you. Here's one of the funniest things I get to do as I talk to all ages as a pastor. And this is one of the themes I've heard from retired men specifically. They'll say something along the lines of, I can't believe how quickly I was replaced. One guy was like, I thought I was a big deal. And a week later, life goes back to normal for company X or company Y. And some of you are thinking like, no way. Adam Cook's like, American Express cannot run without Adam (laughs) Cook. And American Express is like, try us. Redemption North Mountain. This, this is... I have put my heart and soul into this place. And one day, I'm going to be a lost memory. I've had three major jobs, and not a single person at any of those places knows who I am. And I thought I was doing a great job. We get replaced over and over and over again. You're like, please get more positive. But just as a church that has the majority crowd is a younger crowd. We've got the Kens of the world and we love them. But the younger crowd is like building up. And here's what I hear from people that are trying to disciple you younger people. Is there's this sense in you that you can do it all. You can have it all. You can do it all. You can accomplish it all. And you can't. You will do your best, but you're way more limited than you expect, and one day you will be replaced. Clayton Brenner will no longer work for Intel, and his name will fade to the back. If you embrace it as a Christian who's just here to play your role well, there's a freeing reality to that. If you're a human who is looking for attaboys and approval and pats on the back and trophies, that is a fearful thing to think about. That all my work here is just gonna be forgotten? Yes. I want to show you the here's the kings now. Same chart. Just with how long they all reigned. So Jeroboam, he went two decades. Next guy, two years. Next guy, 24 years. Next guy lasted a week. <laughs> Twelve years, twenty-one. Down one guy lasted a month. You see both those. But they all get replaced. And their stories, their narrative portion of Scripture is way less than Saul, David, or Solomon. What do you take of that? We all get replaced. The kings of Judah are replaced. The kings of Israel are replaced. The pastors of North Mountain will be replaced. The teachers in your schools will be replaced. You and your role in your company will be replaced. That is reality. Christianity offers a hopeful, freeing way to embrace that. Like, I can do my job well. One of the prayers I have for this church is I think about what sort of people I want us to be. Thessalonians, Paul writes, and he says, live a quiet life, work with your hands. He's not saying be plumbers and electricians, but he's saying in the melee of life, as you get tossed to and fro thinking about all that life could be, all the things you could be doing, he's like, just put your head down and live a life, a simple life. Don't get caught up in all this. You're going to... Be replaced. Jesus would say this. Here's how he would encourage us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Treasures could be identity, job titles, promotion, fill in the blank. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also you will be replaced but the treasures you lay up for yourself in heaven will never be taken from you my titles whatever big deal I thought I was will go away but my treasures that I lay up will be there for me when I meet him and they'll be with me forever that's good news here's the third thing and this is the biggest lesson I've learned we all leave a legacy like here's just what's been I've basically been preaching the legacy of Saul, the legacy of David, the legacy of Solomon. And you don't get to choose, do I leave a legacy or not? You get to be a part of what sort of legacy you get to leave. It was like, legacy, I was doing some word studies, like, what does the word legacy even mean? It comes from a Latin word that means to appoint a last will. Literally, you're appointing your last word with your legacy, So you live your life, and your legacy is the last word you leave this world, your friends, your family, your spouse, your grandkids, your coworkers, your neighbors, your unsaved neighbors, and you leave them a last word, you leave them a legacy. What is your life's legacy? And again, I said the younger crowd is the more dominant in numbers, so we don't think that far ahead, but you're building up the chapters and the paragraphs of your legacy that you're passing on. And I've seen that as I've opened each week to study Saul and David and Solomon. I'm reading, like, Saul, what is Saul's legacy? Of all these guys, he was more impressive than I realized and more relatable than I want to admit to me as far as the insecurity that plagued him. But what's his legacy? If you had to, like, boil him down, like, who is Saul? I wrote, he's tall, he's handsome. He's got lots of potential. That's a good legacy when you're junior in high school. That's no legacy for a man with gray hair looking back on his life. I was the tallest guy there. The girls all looked at me. And had lots of potential. God would say it this way about Saul's legacy, I think. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the inward heart that's Saul's legacy that's what he's given to us what about David very complicated because he is a prime character he's in the Mount Rushmore of characters of our Bible and yet as I've read his stuff his sin is the most gross to me out of all these men I've encountered and hard to stomach and deal with the Bible would call me man after God's own heart I would tend to agree I would call my man with huge sin, but a bigger, more gracious God. And I want people to know that God is gracious. But I don't think I want my life to be the proof with huge failures. But that was David's legacy. Solomon, wisest man to ever live. Wisdom is impressive, but a worshipful heart is the necessity we all have. He impressed with his answers and he fumbled with the basics of worshiping God properly. These are their legacies. What is your legacy? As I've thought about this, I think about my parents, I've been hanging out with my mom, she's retired now, so I'm gonna make fun of her for being retired and going to the thrift shop all the time. And I'm like, how would I summarize? My dad is serve, 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 serve. My mom's is, we were talking about her family upbringing and just her mom got sent here from Mexico during the Great Depression. All the kids got spread out and then all the kids have various addiction and speaking to the choir with some of you, just broken family tree. And my mom wanted stability and laughter for her kids. In a house that was broken and all over the place, she wanted stability. She bought a house on Ironwood and we never left and she taught us how to laugh at others, but most importantly, at ourselves. It's our legacy. But as you like wrap up, I don't want to just fly into Advent now and end this series and be like, oh, that was good. I want you to think, like, what legacy am I leaving behind right now? I think of the Lingo Box and their foster care legacy. Like, What a beautiful legacy to give their kids and their grandkids. What legacy are you leaving behind? Here's the fourth thing. We must keep life simple. I don't mean like, put your head down and work quietly. I mean the goal of life. Here's what's fascinating. As you read through the rest of Kings and Chronicles, if you were to read through them, God does not judge them the way we could see them be judged. For example, was this king good or bad? Like, was this a successful king and kingdom or an unsuccessful king and kingdom? What are the things he could use? He could use, was the country at war peace success? He could say, the wealth grew during that time. This is American politics. What's the successful president or vice president? What's our GDP? What's unemployment? How many people are angry? Success or not success? There's a lot of ways these kings could be judged. I want to read a few on the board here. Here's how they all get boiled down to in one sentence. Every single king for the rest of the Old Testament. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked of the way of Jeroboam in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Tell me about that king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was the economy like, though? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's it. Next one. Josiah, this is for you youngsters, was eight years old when he became king. Imagine Jude Watt, Jameson Cook taking over this place. Beautiful. (laughs) He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adadiah of Bosketh. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. A better translation I like in other ones, they use the word pleasing. He did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Now, our lives are complicated. There's a lot going on. But it's nice to know, like, there is a simplicity to Christianity in following the Lord. This king was good. Why was he good? How was his job? How was his retirement? He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This king was bad. He did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you're like me, it's, it's hard to get that simple in a world that is very complicated. You think about your kids, raising your kids, all the complications you're dealing with them if you have kids. Think about work, and you get on the news at all, and you think about everything that's going on. It's hard to like have such a simplistic, I don't want simplistic answer. I want simple truths for us. I don't want to oversimplify. But we do need to sort of take our head down out of the clouds from time to time and just be reminded how God sees things. It's interesting. I journal through psalms every year, and I write down stuff that I see it. And every year, every year, the same psalm sticks out to me. No matter what season I'm having kids life's good or works really hard, or whatever's happening, this psalm always hits me, and I always journal, and I have for the last 10-plus years. And here's the psalm. It's not going to be on the board, but this is a psalm of David. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. There is a lot in life to take our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and keep them up here. And I read that every year and I go, oh yeah. Don't get too big for yourself. Keep it simple. And as I've taught through these men and I've looked at all these kings, like here's what matters. You did what evil, or you did what was good, king. Solomon has the last word for us. It was sad ending Solomon the way we did, but that's how he ended his life last week. It was not what you want. He just makes all these false places of worship, creates a false church culture for all of the people of Israel to enjoy. But there is some saving grace in Solomon. He wrote some other books. He wrote Song of Solomon, He wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Ecclesiastes, which is sort of his philosophical treatise on life. And it ends like this, very simply. Here's the last word Solomon gives to us in this room and to anyone who would call Jesus king. We got it up there? Ecclesiastes? There we go. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Here's his summary statement. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For you in this room, all the complicated things you're walking through, your business startup, your family, you're wanting to have kids, the question is, am I pleasing the Lord? Over a lifetime for sure, but moment by moment, is this pleasing to the Lord that simplifies it, sort of calms the game down, it slows it down. And if you can say yes, then you're doing well. Keep it simple. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Here's the last thing. And this is how we're going to end. This is what I've learned most. And I think we've all, we need a better king. I just want to remind you how this whole party started. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8 where we started this whole party. Shindig, all the elders of Israel gathered together to come to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have, says Israel. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. They have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me, serving other gods. So they are doing to you now. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. This is the beginning of our story of the king's. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king you will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some will assign to to be commanders of thousands and commanders of the fifties. And others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Your boys will be put to work for the king. What about the girls? He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, the vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male, your female servants, and the best of your cattle and the donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and do yourselves. He will make make you become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. What did Israel want? They wanted a king like everyone else. And what did they get? They got exactly what they asked for. What did they need? Well, the church answer, we know. Jesus. But specifically, in light of the kingdom, what did they need? Here's what I've boiled it down to. They needed a king who had two requirements on his job description. He was going to obey God, and he was going to listen to the people, not be led and directed by the people like a democratic America, but listen to their cries and not take and take and take. He was going to obey the Father, and he was going to listen to the people. He was going to obey his Father no matter what it cost him, Philippians describes Jesus, the king, this way. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed his father. In good times, yes. In bad times, yes. How bad? To the point of a cross, he was obedient. But more than that, Jesus also is the king that listens to us what Genesis read, and you're like, we haven't even taught the passage here. Here's what Genesis read at the beginning of this. Rehoboam, verse 4, The people cry out, Your father made our yoke heavy. Therefore, lighten the heart service of your father and this heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Verse 5, Go away, let me think about this. Will I listen to the cries of the people? Verse 6, King Rehoboam took counsel with the old man who stood before Solomon's father while he was still alive. How do you advise me to answer? And they said what an old wise guy would say. If you will be a servant to his people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then you, they will be your servants forever. Verse 8. But he abandoned the counsel of the old man. He gave and took counsel with the young man who had grown up with him and stood before him. Verse 9. What do you advise me to answer the people? Lighten the yoke that When they say to lighten the yoke that your father put on us. Verse 10 young men who had grown up with him said, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Begin the split kingdom. Go to verse 16. And when all Israel heard that the king did not listen to him, the people answered the king, What portion do we have here in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, Israel. Look out for your own house now, David. So Israel went to their tents. We needed a king that obeyed the father. But more than that, we also needed a king that listened to people. How is Jesus described? Peter would describe him this way. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How many anxieties? All of them. Why? Because he cares. There's not a single king that can be said of that except for King Jesus. So as we wrap up this, I just want us to be refocused on Jesus Christ, which is why some of you come here to be refocused. Some of you are just figuring stuff out, but here's the deal. Jesus is the king who was obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. He is the only obedient human to ever live. And because of that, God made him king over all. And what kind of king is he? He's a king who says this to every person in this room. I listen to you. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. And with that, we get to now celebrate Advent and the true king. Before we get there, I want to do a thing we don't always do here. As we wrap this up, some of you are coming and figuring this out. I don't want to just assume that all of us get how this works. You can become a Christian at any moment. And as we wrap up this book and we see the the futility of life and the leaders that this world gives us, we want a better king. Some of you are like, I want Jesus. Well, how do I get Jesus? How do I do this Jesus thing, this Christian thing? How do I walk into this and become, how do I know I'm a Christian? How does she know she's a Christian and he knows he's a Christian? All you do is this. Paul says this. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord or King, you will be saved. And here's what some of you may not know fully. The biggest need you have for God to answer in your life is the problem of sin that you have. The anxiety you might not have to the extent you need to have it is your sin, that it has separated you from God, that he is wrathful God, rightfully wrathful, and his wrath is coming for sin. And one day, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and those who have been covered by Jesus by faith, Will spend eternity with him. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ and said, I want a king, but not him, will face judgment and punishment for eternity. But that does not have to be the case. So I just want to end with a prayer just to show you guys what happened to me when I was 18 years old a total idiot, a total sinner, full of insecurity. No hope for the future. And somebody told me about Jesus Christ who loved me. Not because of everything I've done, but in spite of everything I've done. And he's forgiven you. Do you want that? I said, yes. And I prayed and I received Jesus and my life has not been peaches. But I know the king of the universe now and he cares about me. Amen? Amen. I want to pray. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. And if you want to know Jesus, it's as simple as confessing with your mouth. Say, Jesus, you are Lord. You're the King. You were the obedient one. All I've brought to this equation is my sin. So forgive me of my sin as you forgave our brother Ken, not because of anything in us, but because of Jesus Christ in his quick, passionate desire to offer forgiveness to any who would turn to him. So God, for those in this room who need to know you, I pray that they now confess their sin. They confess that you are Lord. They believe in their heart that you really are who you say you are. And the biggest need they've had their entire life now is met in you. So God, thank you for saving us. Thank you that your story of salvation is still open and still being written, and that you use our church to help fill those pages of sinners saved by grace. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.